Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. This morning, what I would like us to do on this anniversary service, when we're all here, and some of you may have even come back for the anniversary service, to recenter us on exactly what is a church. To get back to the basics of this idea of a church, and how does that spring forth, and what does that look like? What is the foundation for, for being a church? Um, and so we're going to do that this morning. We've, we've called the sermon Church, makes sense, uh, the model and the message. And we're going to be looking at that this morning. Uh, we're going to be reading from the pastoral epistle of Timothy, 1 Timothy. And, and it's an epistle that Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, who, who is a pastor at a church in Ephesus. And he writes two letters. We're going to be looking at a passage from the first one. Um, we're going to be looking at what it means to be the church. Now, this whole letter that Paul writes to Timothy is an encouragement and, and it's almost an instruction for how to conduct yourself as a church. What, what should you do? And we don't have time to go through the whole book today, but we do have time to, to look at just a small passage. We're just going to be looking at two verses today. And those two verses are 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 16. And in these two verses, we're going to see how Paul encourages Timothy on the model or what the church should look like and the message, who exactly should the church be. So if you have your Bible with you, we'll have the passage on the screen. But if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 3, um, verses 14 through 16. It's right before 2 Timothy. Right. I'll give you guys a, a moment to turn there. All right. Hear now the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. God, that we are not left alone. That you have given us instruction on how to be the church. That you have given us instruction on how to be a holy people. A people after your own heart, God. Lord, we thank you that that we have letters like this, Lord, that give us insight into what it means to be followers of God. So, Lord, I pray that you would be over this message, God, that your words would come forth, God, that you would encourage us and spur us on, that you would convict us of our sin and our complacency, God, and that you would call us to holy living. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I said, we have this letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. And he's giving these instructions, and he's given a plan or a picture for what the church should be. Now, he gives a 
lot of different things that we don't have, no, have time to talk about today. But here we're just looking at a broad overview. And the first thing we see is that he gives these three different models for how the church should look. And it's not three distinct models. It's kind of a conglomeration, one big model with three different parts. And we see that those three parts are a household of God, the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of truth. So what we're going to do first, the first part here, is we're just going to go through those three things, and we're going to look at them and see what does it mean? What do those things mean? What does that look like? So first we'll look at the household of God. Household of God. Paul uses a term here. In the Greek, it's the word oikos. And it basically means family or those people that you live with. He's literally saying the people in your house. And he says that we are a household of God. What Paul is not saying here is that we are people who get together once or twice a week. We get together on Sunday mornings. We talk about our jobs. We talk about TV. We talk about sports. And we just hang out whenever we feel like it. That's not what he's saying here. What Paul is saying is that we, as God's children, are eternal brothers and sisters. We are bound together. I mean, think about it. We say this idea all the time, especially in the South. We say, oh, we're just one big happy family, right? But really think of that idea of family. Most families that I know aren't, they may be big, but they're not always happy, right? But they're still a family. And we have God as our Father, And us as Christians are brothers and sisters. And God has even given us leaders in our family, like pastors and deacons, who help us carry out the will of God. Now, some of you may say something like, yeah, I get the family concept, but we're not really family. We're not really related. But I would say that we are. I would say that you and I are blood brothers and sisters. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ We are eternally bound together. And we are even more so brothers and sisters than your actual biological brothers and sisters because we are new creations under Christ. And we are brothers and sisters because of the blood that he poured out on our behalf. And this this idea has a profound implication for our lives. I was thinking back to, to all the people that have been a part of day three over the years. And I was thinking back to people that come, some stayed, and some left, some may be back today, some of you may not even be here a year from now. But this idea of family, what it really means is that those of you who are Christians are going to be eternally worshiping with each other. So that means the people that you don't really like that are Christians, you're going to be worshiping for eternity with them. And the people who left day three, we're going to be eternally worshiping with them too. And the church down the street, we're going to be eternally worshiping with them too. And the church up in Lenore, we're going to be eternally worshiping with them. What an encouragement. I mean, it's really convicting and it's really pressing to to encourage one another, right? It it really pushes you to, to get past those little things that we get mad at each other about. And to bind together and to build one another up. See, whenever Christians gather together as a family for prayer and for praise and for listening to the priest's word and for sharing communion together, God takes up residence among them. God is 
amongst his people. And this, this is an intense relationship. This idea of family is an intense relationship. This, this penetrates not just our large gathering times where we come together as a family. It penetrates all the way down to one-on-one discipleship. Let me make an encouragement here. Each and every one of you should be seeking someone who's further along in the faith with you to learn from that person, to, to allow that person to disciple you, to pour their lives into you. Each one of you should be binding together with those who are like you in the faith and having them hold you accountable. And ultimately, each one of us should be pursuing this, this opportunity to disciple somebody else who's, who's young in their faith. This is, this is this idea of an intense relationship. And this is the familial model of the church. That we're in this together. No matter where we've come from, no matter where we've been, because of Christ, we're in this together. And this, this is what, it, what, what Paul means when he says we're the household of God. And from here, he goes to the next model. He says that we are the church of the living God. Um, he says that we're the church of the living God. And when you first look at this part, you may say, oh, this has more to do with God than it actually does the church. But I think if we probe why Paul wrote it this way, we'll see that this, this model too has profound implications for us. See, this term, living God, it's not a new phrase by any means. This is actually an Old Testament phrase. And it was used a lot in the Old Testament to distinguish the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true living God, from these gods, these other pagan religions were building with hands of wood and gold. And so you have these two, these two gods, right? And our God is the one true living God. And so this phrase is used all over the Old Testament. And I think Paul uses it here to draw us back to that to some degree. And he, he does it by making a couple of points. Um, and number one, I think this teaches us that God is the source of life. And number two, that God is the eternal life giver. And what I mean by that is that God, the one true living God, upholds everything with his omnipotent hand. He literally upholds everything. Like the earth right now is rotating on axis, and that's only because God is allowing it to do that. Right now, the sun is shining maybe outside, and that's only because God has kept it shining. And each one of you are sitting in seats right now because God created gravity. (laughs) We're not all floating to the ceiling. God is holding everything with his hand. And on the other side of that, God is the eternal life giver. Through Jesus Christ and into our lives, God breathes life. Where there were once dead bones, where there was once chains around our ankles from sin, God has breathed freedom and eternal life into us. And how does this tie back to the church? I think it ties back to the church because, just think back with me for a second. So if you think back to the Old Testament, when Moses was leading the people of God, what did God ask Moses to do? We asked him to do a lot of things. But one thing that he asked him to do was to build a tabernacle. Do you remember that? Moses, or God gives Moses these really distinct plans for building this giant tent. 
And the reason that Moses is building this tent is so that God can come and dwell among his people in what we call the Holy of Holies. Now, when Paul uses this phrase, church of the living God, it should take us back to that idea of God living amongst his people. But we're not in the Old Testament anymore. Christ has come. So now we don't have God living among us anymore in in a tabernacle or in a holies of holies. He's not like behind this wall somewhere. But through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, God is living in us. We are the church of the living God because God lives within us. This, in and of itself, is crazy to think about. That he no longer needs a tent or a tabernacle to dwell in. Because he lives amongst his church and amongst his people. And think about the application of that. That whenever Christians come together, like this morning, like every Sunday, or like when you come together to eat meals in one another's home, or when you spend time praying together throughout the week in Bible studies, God is there. Say it another way, God lives in His house. We as the household of God are living temples and living tabernacles. And this is what Paul means when he says that we're the church of the living God. And then the last model he gives us is a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, Paul starts to get down to the purpose of why he's writing this way. I mean, at this point, if you're not a Christian, if you've never been in church before, you got to be like, what the heck's going on, right? Like, there's these people that are getting together, and they're praying, and they're singing songs, and they're all different, but they're still getting together, and they're friends, and they're family, why Why would you do this? What is, what is Why is the reason? And Paul begins to get down to that here. Now, some of you probably have translations that say pillar and foundation of truth. Does anybody have a tra- translation that says that? Maybe. No? Okay. Yeah? Okay. Oh, got one. All right. Well, then I'll keep making this point. <laughs> I don't think foundation is the best word there. And I'll just tell why in a minute. Um, don't mark it out your Bible and write buttress. It's not necessary. But um, I'll explain why. I don't think that's the best way. But let's think about what a pillar and buttress are first. Um, a pillar, right? So if you look in the sanctuary, we have columns. These columns right here. And it's safe to say that if those weren't there, there's a chance that this whole thing may tumbling, come tumbling down, right? And that's what pillars do. They They hold up. This, the, these, these columns right now are holding this roof up. And that's the purpose of a pillar. They keep it from all f- falling down. And a buttress is kind of the same way. I didn't know what a buttress was when I first read this. And that may be the reason they put foundation in there because nobody knows what a buttress is anymore. But I looked it up, and I may be wrong, but this is what I could ascertain from what I read on Wikipedia, um, <laughs> is that a buttress stabilizes a wall. So it's at an angle, and it runs from the the ground, all the way up to the side of the wall, and it keeps the wall from falling over. Right? I get it? Yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> um, and, and so Paul gives us these two images of a pillar and a buttress. And why does he do that? Well, it's, it's not hard to see what he's doing here. He's saying that the church is the ones who hold the truth up, who stabilize the truth. God's people are the ones that hold the truth steady. So not only is the church 
a household for his people. Not only is the church a house for God, but the church is a house for truth. Christians are people of the truth. And we hold that truth up. And we hold it steady. So we get to this question, how do we do that? Or what is the truth? If you're a pillar and buttress of truth, if each one of you are a pillar or a buttress, I don't know if you'd rather be a pillar or a buttress, um, but each one of us are pillars and buttresses of truth. You've got to know what the truth is, right? So that begs the question, what is the truth? Well, that brings us to the second part of what the church is. Paul, as we walk down through the passage, we see what Paul says next. We go to verse 16. He says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And this is the message. A lot of commentators believe that what Paul is doing here is he's quoting one of the early church hymns. One of the songs that the church sang when it first began. And we see that he does it by giving an outline. This, this hymn that he's quoting is an outline of the life of Christ. So what I want us to do in the second part here is just to walk through those. We're going to break it up into three parts, two lines each. We're going to look at the message of Christ, which is the revelation of Christ, the witness of Christ, and the reception of Christ. First, we have the revelation of Christ. Yet he was both manifested and vindicated. You see that? He was manifested and vindicated. Now, manifested. So this is a crazy word, and I really like it, because it doesn't just mean, he doesn't say that he was here and then he was vindicated. He says he was manifested. And it's not just that Jesus came to earth. It's, it's this idea that God became man, that God came and lived among us. In Philippians 2, verses 6 and six through 8, it says that he didn't count his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he gave it up and became a servant and offered up his life, even to death, to, even to the point of death on a cross. It's not this idea that Jesus, oh, Jesus was here and Jesus walked on earth. It's the idea that God became man that he made his home among us. And it can be the same word that we translated as tabernacle. Both of these words mean the same thing, that God came and dwelt among us. Basically, that Jesus came and tabernacled, lived with us. See, it was God who spit in the mud so the blind man could see. And it was God who drank from that Samaritan woman's ladle as he became God in her life. And it was God himself who yelled for Lazarus to come forth as he raised him from the dead. And it was God's face who was kissed as he was betrayed by Judas. And it was God who was spit upon as he carried the cross. And it was God whose body was beaten and filleted as he was silent. And it was God who was hung on a bloody, brutal cross and died. And it was an actual body that was taken down from that cross. And it was an actual corpse 
that was laid in that tomb. And he laid in that tomb for three days. And then three days later, he was proven to be right. He was vindicated. See, this is where the second part of this one comes in. After he laid in that grave for three days, the Holy Spirit came and he breathed life into Jesus. And Jesus rose from the dead. And everything that Jesus did and said was proven to be right. And he proved that he really was God of the universe. And this, Paul gives us, is the revelation of Christ. That he lived among us and he died a death and then he was vindicated. He was shown to be who he said he was. And from there, we see the witness of Christ. Now, this one tripped me out a little bit. Because it was. he says he was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. Which is a little bit crazy because we don't talk about angels a lot. We don't talk about like angelic beings and we don't really get into that kind of stuff too much. But if you really think about it, when I started to think about it, I realized angels had been there the whole time. Angels really did see it all. I mean, think about it. Angels were the ones who came to Mary and told her she was going to have a son. And then angels came to Joseph and told him. And then we see angels in the desert after Christ has been tempted by Satan. They come and minister to him there. And then we see angels come and minister to Christ when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. And then you see angels who are at the tomb after the resurrection, right? And then we even see angels ministering to the apostles and the disciples as Jesus is ascending into heaven. And, and, we keep going, angels are singing over our Lord right now in heaven. They are crying, holy, holy, holy. Angels have seen it all. They have been there. And what Paul does here is beautiful. He contrasts these heavenly beings who have been there for it all to the nations. When Paul says the nations here, he's not talking about a geopolitical nation. He's not talking about, you know, Britain or... um, another country. He's not talking about Canada. He's not talking about USA. When he says nations, he's talking about the peoples of the world. He's talking about the Gentiles, peoples of every tongue and every tribe. He's talking about you and I. And the reason he does this is because as much as the angels are with Christ, because Christ has been proclaimed among us, we are. I mean, think about it. (laughs) 2,000 years ago, there were these 12 guys that got to know Jesus really well. And they're called his apostles. And from those 12 guys, well, 11 if you take away Judas, but then they added another one, so they're back up to 12 in Acts. From those 12 guys, did the whole message of Christ spread from person to person, to person, until it reaches and continues to reach the entire world today. That if, if, if those 12 guys, and I guess we include Paul in that as well, had not went and proclaimed who Christ was, you and I wouldn't be sitting here right now. But that he is proclaimed and that we, we continue to proclaim him. We continue to go on mission trips. We continue to try to reach the unreached people groups. We continue to translate scripture. And so we have these two 
categories, this heavenly realm of angelic beings and this earthly realm of the nations. And they're both witnessing the glory and the majesty of Christ. And this is what Paul calls the witness of Christ. The last part we have is the reception of Christ. (laughs) The reception of Christ. First, that he is believed on, and then he is taken up. Now, the believed on one may not seem like a, that big of a deal. But if you think about it, it really is. I mean, think about all this stuff we've just been talking about, about Jesus. How crazy is it that people actually believe it? Like, the idea of Christianity to someone who's, who hasn't been changed by the Holy Spirit is crazy. Like, in Portland, I... We run up against this a lot, where people, you tell people, oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday. They're like, you still go to church? People actually still do that? And they're, they actually, tell me about it. Like, you guys go to church? What's it about? And this idea is crazy that people believe on it, but they do. People, we as Christians place everything that we have on Jesus. Like, we place all our money. We place all of our family. We place all of our time, our energy on Jesus. That's crazy. But it happens, and it is happening. This is an interesting thought. Since the day that Jesus rose from the tomb, it's very unlikely that a day has went by that someone somewhere has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Not a day has gone by. See, Christ calls us forth. And the Holy Spirit penetrates our hardened hearts. And we believe Him. And we place our faith in Him. And the second part of this reception is a specific event. It's this time that Paul is talking about here. We know as the ascension of Christ. And we see it in the beginning of Acts. That Christ ascends into heaven and sits on His rightful throne at the right hand of God. And can you imagine the angelic beings there? Can you imagine the reception that Christ received? How loudly they rejoiced. And we see this culmination of this hymn here. And we sit on it and we wait for Christ to return. So we have these message, this this idea that Paul presents here. And It's this truth that he talks about as a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul presents it here as a Christian carol, but we we know it as the gospel. Paul says another way in 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we have it, right? I'm I'm done, right? We got our models and we got our message. I'm not done. (laughs) Because we still have this gap in between. How do they relate? You have this message of who Christ is. You have these models that he gives as a household of the living God who's a pillar and buttress of truth. But what's the relationship? Why does Paul say, oh, here's some models, and oh, here's the message? What's what's the the thing that binds them together? 
Well, I left it out. It's verse 16 in the first part. And it's what he calls the mystery of godliness. He says, great is this mystery of godliness. And it's the hinge. It is the hinge of the message and the model. This idea of godliness. And he says, great is the mystery. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And I think we're all in agreement, right? At this point, like, it's how do we do it? It's huge. This idea of we're supposed to be a holy church, we're supposed to be a holy people who are proclaiming Christ among the nations. How, how does it happen? If a church is supposed to be a pillar and a buttress of truth, it needs to know the truth. And the truth about being a church probably seems like a mystery to some. And I, I believe this is part of the reason some churches fall apart. It's because they haven't seen this mystery of godliness. They haven't really seen what it is. And it's not some secret. The word mystery here, when we hear mystery in America, we think, ooh, mystery, you know, murder she wrote. Um, it's a mystery. It's probably the only time you're going to hear an Angela Lansbury reference in a sermon. So get your money's worth today. Um <laughs> We hear this idea of mystery, and it's not that it's a secret. It's not like this mystery is like this this giant secret that everybody's keeping. Like, you guys don't have a secret, right? And it's not like this mystery is is this thing where we need, like, 3D glasses, or we need to find, like, the secret pattern in the Bible to unlock the mystery. This idea of mystery is something that w- was hidden, but is now revealed. That's what Paul's conveying here. The, the mystery was hidden, but it's now revealed. And what does he say the mystery is? Well, we just talked about it. The mystery to godliness is in the message. The mystery of godliness is the mystery of Christ. See, I think Paul uses this mystery phrase to help convey the glory and the grandeur of the mystery of Jesus himself. He he does it to to show that this is a saving mystery of the glory of Jesus Christ. And he uses this beautiful hymn to paint this tapestry of Christ's life. And why do you, why do you think he does that? Well, he does it to bring them into worship. He does it to bring them into life-altering, earth-shattering, joy-filled worship. And that's what the gospel does. I mean, the gospel changes everything. I'm reminded about one of... Um, the best baseball coaches of all time. A gentleman by the name of Bobby Cox. Some of you may have heard of him. Until recently, um, a couple of years ago, he retired from being coach of the Atlanta Braves. And he accomplished a lot of different things in his career. But what many people don't know is that one thing he also accomplished was being thrown out of or ejected from more games than any other base- baseball coach in history. You know, you're out of here. He was ejected from more games than anybody else. And that seems like a horrible thing to be known for, right? Like, he's just a grumpy old man. He gets thrown out of a lot of games. No, it's actually not the truth. If, if you dig, if you dig a little bit, which, which some sports writers have, they've uncovered this, this theory, or they've come up with this theory about the statistics of what happens when Bobby Cox gets thrown out of baseball games. And the theory really started to solidify back in 2007. 
Back in 2007, um, in October, I think, the Braves were playing the San Francisco Giants. And it's in the fifth inning, and they're losing 3-0. And Chipper Jones, who's one of the best ball, baseball players the Braves have ever had, is up to bat. Amen. Um, he's up to bat, has two strikes on him, and he strikes out, watching the third strike fly past, doesn't even swing at it, and he's called out. But he doesn't think it's a strike, just like everybody else, right, in baseball. It's not a strike. He throws his helmet off and starts cursing, which wasn't a good idea because the home plate umpire was an ordained minister. So the umpire takes off his mask, and you don't argue strikes and balls in baseball. It'll get you thrown out. So him and the umpire start going at it. And all of a sudden, they both stop. And the umpire turns because there is such a commotion coming out of the dugout. And it's Bobby Cox. He's ca causing this huge ruckus. And he's yelling because what Bobby realizes is, oh, no, here goes Chipper running his mouth. Somebody's going to get thrown out of the game. You know what? I'll get thrown out of the game. So he causes this huge ruckus, and the umpire ends up ejecting him from the game. And the real story is what happens after he gets ejected. The Braves wake up. They tie the game up, 3-3, and it's the bottom of the ninth with two outs. And Shepard Jones steps up to bat again, and he smashes a double into right field and drives home the winning run. And the Braves go on to win the game. Now, especially you guys that aren't sports fans are like, why in the heck are you telling that story? I tell it because I think the gospel really is shaped in a lot of the same way. I mean, it's Jesus. Think about this. It's Jesus, not just a coach. It's Jesus who dove headlong past a billion stars through the Milky Way into the womb of Mary where he swam and grew until he was born and he lived a perfect sinless life. And there on that blessed Friday, he offered up his life and he was ejected from life and took on death and was crucified upon the worst creation of men. And he bore what surely we deserve, not just for mouthing off over a strikeout, but for all the suffering and for all the sickness and for all the horrors that we find in our life. He died. And so we, as his holy people, should wake up, just like those baseball players did, but 10,000 times brighter. Because it wasn't just our coach who got ejected from the game. It was our Lord and our God who died on our behalf for us. And that is how the church becomes those models. And that is how the church proclaims those message, the message. See, in reality, the message is what drives the models. In reality, this message of Jesus Christ is what drives us to be a household of God. What drives us to be the people of God. What drives us to be pillars who stand tall and hold God above everything else and say, this is my God, not money, not fame, not power, but Jesus and that is who the people of God are. And it, it demands a response. You don't just get to sit here and go home today and forget about it. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit won't let you forget about it. Because the gospel demands a response. 
If, if day three, if we are ever going to be the church that God has called us to be, we must always dwell upon this mystery. We must always dwell upon the mystery of Christ. That God would give up His heavenly throne and offer up His life. That is the only thing that can do it. Not more programs. Things like Trunk or Treat are great. It's an awesome way to reach the community. But just doing that, that's not what makes us the church. Granite Optimus can do Trunk or Treat. Having concerts or having special events or programs, it's not, it's not what does it. The only way that we're ever going to be the church is if we sit and marinate in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way that you're ever going to reach Caldwell County is that if we alone proclaim Jesus Christ. See, we have to be the church for people to actually listen to us, right? Um, the theologian Francis Schaeffer said it this way. He says, we must never forget that the final apologetic or the defense of Christianity, that's what the word apologetic means, it's a defense for Christianity. We must never forget that the defense for Christianity, which Jesus gives, is the observable, the viewable, able to see, love of true Christian for true Christian. You know what's going to impact Caldwell County? Not going on everybody's door and knocking on it. What's going to impact Caldwell County? How day three can really do it? Here's the secret. Love one another. Of course, love those in the community as well. But love one another. Build one another up. Preach the gospel to one another. Preaching is not just something that happens up here on Sunday mornings. Preaching happens in your day-to-day life when your best friend is struggling. And you say, you know what, brother? Christ loves you, and I love you, and he died for you. And you can stand upon that. Everything else may fall away, but you can stand upon that. These three descriptive phrases together make a compelling picture. This idea of who the church is. See, as the church, we are a family. And together, we are to love as brothers and sisters who share in the same heritage. And we are the church of a true living God. And we come together as multiple temples in dynamic community that's, that's a really living, breathing community. And we hold up as pillars and as buttresses of truth the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the mortar, which is the bedrock, which is the cornerstone of everything that we do. In a little bit, we're going to make our way upstairs. We're going to share some good old cooking um, that I've been looking forward to. Um, there's good food in Portland, but not like here. Um, and I'm excited about it. I'm excited that we all get to go upstairs and share a meal together. I'm looking forward to it. If you plan on holding my son, just hand sanitize first, and you can hold him while you want. We're just going to hang out. It's going to be fun. <laughs> but right now, we're, uh, we're going to share in a different kind of meal. As a body here, as the church, we're going to partake in communion. 
And John and the band are going to come out, or John's going to come out, and, and he's just going to play a song. And, and as he's playing the song, I invite all of you to come up and grab one of the packets from the baskets up here. Um, and make your way back to your seat. Don't take communion up here. Make your way back to your seat and just hang on to it. Because in a little bit, after, the, after everybody's gotten one, we're going to share communion together as a family. Um, so I'm going to ask John and Phil, go ahead and come on up. And um, let me pray for us. Christ, you, you alone are our cornerstone, Lord. God, everything else in this world may fall away. But you are the one upon which we stand, God. Lord, I pray over these people right now, God. Lord, I pray that you would dive into the depths of their heart, God. That you would see their innermost thoughts and their innermost emotions, God. Lord, and that you would radically impact those with the truth that you save sinners. God, that they don't have to cling to themselves. They don't have to cling to their pride. They don't have to cling to their good works. They don't have to cling to how good of a church they're a part of. They don't even have to cling to how much they read the Bible, God, but that they can cling to you because you alone are our salvation. So God, as we, as we come and take communion now, Lord, I pray that you would, you would move in our hearts. Lord, we, we glorify and we praise you for who you are. God, you alone are king. Not us and nothing that we do, but you alone. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.